Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Church, it is good to be with you this morning, and we know that this doesn't look like a normal Sunday for us as a church, but again, we are thankful that even in the small capacity that we are allowed to gather with 50 people, that the people are here, that you guys are here, and it means a lot that we can worship God together um, as one body, and I want to welcome everyone who is online and watching with us online, and in this times, it's a privilege again that we have um, the technology to be able to do that. And a special, um, just a special day today because it's Father's Day. And so we are super thankful for all the dads in our church. And that makes us just so much more thankful for our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. One thing that is real is like in the old days, um, Israel, they related to God corporately as Father. But when Jesus came into your life, that all changed. Because now He is your Father personally. And that changes everything. And that is the one we came to serve and the one we came to worship here today. And it's Him that we want to speak today. And so we are, as you know, in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians. And we are studying God's Word. And one of the things I saw the other day was a story about a criminal. This cold-hearted criminal that was in, found himself in this position. He's in prison, and he has this very specific skill set. And this criminal was approached by the government, and they needed him to help him. The government needed this criminal's help. And so he had to make a choice. Am I going to help the government, or am I maybe going to take this opportunity when I'm helping them to run for freedom? And save my own skin. And so the government had to trust him because it was a desperate situation. Um, they were really in need of this guy's skill set. And so they trusted him. They gave him the responsibility. And then when later he ca- they came back and they see this guy actually helped the situation, they asked him, what is it that we can give you? What is it that we can give you? We'll, we'll give you anything. Immunity. We'll take away your life sentence. We'll take all of it away. What can we give you to thank you for the way you've helped us today? And this was his reply. He said, I want to change. I want to change. That is what I want. I want to change. And the only way we know the Bible says someone can truly change is when Jesus Christ is revealed to you. In a way that you've never seen him before. I mean, the fact is, every morning when we wake up, we are engaged in a battle. Do you recognize that? Every day when you wake up, you are in a battle for what is the truth. But we are engaging this battle knowing that we serve a sovereign God. 
who is in control of all things all the time. And nothing, nothing will stand in His way from getting done what He wants to get done. Because as you know, Satan, he's opposed to the plan of God. And he's always been from the very beginning. He's the author of lies and he loves to lead people astray. And one of the things he likes to do, and we know this, is that he likes to distort the good news of the gospel. So that people can think they can somehow do certain things in order for God to be happy with them. Which means that people are not fully trusting Jesus. And everything he did in his life, his death and his resurrection... But because God is the one who's ultimately in control, and the one who gave us this truth, this wonderful gospel that we hold on to so much, we want to be sure what that truth is every single day. Where it came from, and how it changes our lives, so that we can live lives that glorify Him. We want to change so that we can live lives that glorify God. Because of this amazing grace. We see He's got this amazing plan to save us. And then He gives us this amazing privilege to live for His glory. And so just think about the book of Acts. If you ever read the book of Acts, we see in the book of Acts that how the gospel came to the Jews first. Acts 3.26 God, having raised up His servants, sent to Him you, the Jews, first, to bless bless you by turning everyone from your wickedness. Romans 1.16, we all know this verse so well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. But then we get to this turning point in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Stephen, as you know, is he's giving this amazing sermon and he's summarizing basically the whole Old Testament and now Jesus is the fulfillment and the true Messiah that came to deliver us from our sins. But that leads to his stoning, to his death. And he's glorifying God as he looks into the heavens and in this moment he's seizing Jesus in this supernatural way as all these stones are flying from every direction. And he's receiving this amazing grace in this moment even as he's dying for Jesus. But the results of that event is so important because what happened? What happened? The other people standing around Stephen, they saw what happened to him and they became afraid. And so what did they do? Acts 8 verse 2. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Scattered. Scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. And then in verse 4 we read, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. See, all these believers are scattered and they took the good news of Jesus and this gospel of grace to the regions beyond Jerusalem. Because God is sovereignly at work at getting this message to move. Later in chapter 8, we read that Philip took the message to the Samaritans. And and then we see in, in Acts chapter 10 how Peter, the apostle Peter, took the gospel to the Gentiles with a scene where he interacts with this Roman centurion. Cornelius and his family. But even as the gospel's on the move, God has always had the plan to set apart for himself someone that would carry this message to the masses. 
to the nations. And last week we saw how in his own testimony, Paul explains that God converted him on the road to Damascus for that very purpose. To of proclaiming him, Jesus, this message of grace to the nations. And equipping others along the way who would respond to this message by faith to do the same. But the problem is the Jews, they do not like this message. They believed it had too much grace. Can you imagine a sentence like that? Too much grace. Can there be such a thing as too much grace? See, Paul's radical conversion was too radical for them. Because they always believed that you had to be right with God, you have to participate in the salvation process. Yes, you have to be a righteous person, but that included the circumcision, keeping the rules, all the laws, and all these traditions. They hated the idea that their Messiah would end up on a cross, and they didn't understand that because the cross, in fact, that this is the way that God made so that people can obtain a righteousness that is not from themselves. They hated this. They were blind to this. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, they developed this religious system and traditions to rely on their own efforts. And so the result is, some of these false teachers, they would counter the spread of the gospel. They're following in the steps of where the gospel is going and they seek to stop it from spreading. They're infiltrating churches and these churches that were being planted by Paul to twist his very message. This very message that's able to set people free from all this bondage. And this is so significant because essentially what these legalists, these Judaizers are doing is that instead of living for God's glory because of His transforming grace, they are taking away God's glory because of their legalism. Do you see that? Instead of living for God's glory because of His transforming grace, they are taking away from God's glory because of their legalism. And so that means they are attacking the very character of God. This is serious. They are saying God is not as loving and as gracious as He says He is. Because all this time they're just trying to rely on their own performance and effort. And the thing is, the sad thing is they think they're doing a good thing. They think they're doing, this is what God wants them to do. They're getting the truth wrong. And so Paul has been commissioned by God to declare the right truth. And he's writing to the Galatians to say, if you mess with this gospel, you're going to be cursed. You're going to be cursed by God. And so to make his point clear, he wants to be the one who proclaims this message and sharing about his own testimony, how the power of God's transforming grace worked in his life. And he goes to great lengths to show us how this all works. Because initially, back in the beginning of the letter, he says what? He says, this gospel is not from man, but from Jesus Christ. The very opening verse. Then down in verse 11, he says again, I received this message, this revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not man's gospel. There's been no human influence on the origin of this gospel. And then he's proving it by talking about his former life in Judaism and everything he did that opposed this message of grace. 
But then we know, we see that God came out of nowhere. On the road to Damascus, God came out of nowhere and revealed His Son to him. And He gave him a new purpose. And, and the question then that follows after all this, what happened to Paul after his conversion? What happened to Paul after his conversion? Who did he meet with? Where did he go? All these questions are vital to his defense. His defense of being an apostle that got the message directly from God. And in our text today, he explains how independent he was after his conversion. That's what he wants to get across. How independent he operated after his conversions. To prove to the Galatians that even after this dramatic transformation, there's been no influence of any human kind on his message. Not even the other apostles. And then he also shows us that true conversion leads to a life that glorifies God. True conversion leads to a life that glorifies God. When you become a true Christian, you live a life that brings glory to the one that saved you by His grace. Because true conversions means that you can't be living the same way you used to live. True change has taken place. And to help us understand what happened after his conversion, Paul is going to show us in verses 16 to 24 of Galatians 1, his own obedience to this call from God. How he went to certain places, he met with certain people, and the result was others who have never met him, they've never seen him in person, they glorified God because of his testimony. We're talking about the results of grace. In his pre-conversion life, we saw the need for grace. This is a man who desperately needed the grace of God. Then in his conversion, we saw the power of God's grace. The amazing power who is able to transform someone like Paul, who's, who, who's going a hundred miles an hour in one direction and able to turn that train around. And today we see the result of God's grace. And so let's, let's just read the text again together. And I'll read from Galatians 1 verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life of Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute the church is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And the result? 
And they glorified God because of me. We're going to pick up Paul's testimony here in the end of verse 16. Because he just explained that God is the one who set him apart. Who called him by his grace. Who was pleased to reveal his son to him. And who gave him this new job. Paul is showing us that true conversion leads to a life of obedience. He's showing us that he responded to God's call in his life by going where God wanted him to go. And so the first thing we see is the movements after his conversion. The movements after his conversion. That's verses 16 and 17. He says, after he was converted, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. So after this dramatic conversion happened, where Paul just stated positively how God revealed his son to him, he jumps in to say two negative things immediately and what he did not do. And he's saying it for a specific reason. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul had no interaction with any kind of person about the gospel. Paul is saying, I did not get any other human being uh, on this face of this planet to talk to me about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This very gospel that I'm now proclaiming. Because as I've already said, Paul saying, this gospel came to me from a pure heavenly source. It was a heavenly revelation, God himself. Because again, the Gentiles, they might have been you know, wondering or hesitant about this message if they knew it had some sort of Jewish connection. Because then he says the second negative thing in verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Now Paul is saying the gospel I am preaching, I, I didn't get from the other apostles either. Because you would think the, the logical thing for Paul to do after he was just converted is to go up to Jerusalem and meet the other apostles to make sure he's got the right gospel message. And to benefit from how they received this message from God before him. Because again, remember the accusation against him. The accusation is, these Judaizers are saying that he got this gospel from others like the apostles and he's made up his own version. This easy believe version. That's got too much grace. But Paul's making it clear, I didn't consult with anyone after my conversion. I didn't go to Jerusalem. So where did he go? Where did he go? He says, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now this is where the Bible gets fun. This is when we read our Bibles and and if we read the, the same account that happens in the book of Acts, Luke doesn't describe what that Paul went into Arabia. He only mentions that Paul was in Damascus and then later returned again to Damascus. So here in Galatians, Paul is helping us fill in some of the details of what he was doing after his conversion. He says he went to Arabia. And this is talking about the Nabataean kingdom of Arabia that's kind of next door to Damascus. This Romanized nation whose influence stretched as far as Damascus. So you remember, Paul was on his way to Damascus. Along the way, he got converted. And as he arrived in Damascus, he was this fearless, bold, gospel-preaching, converted, changed man. 
Acts 9 verse 19 says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has not he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And the Jews are amazed at this man's soul because he's explaining stuff about Jesus. And he's making all these connections with the Old Testament and proving to them that Jesus in fact is the Christ, the true Messiah. And they didn't like it. And so even though Paul increased in strength as a preacher, he was in danger. Down in 9, Acts 9, verse 23, we read, what, we read what happens next. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening of the wall, lowering him in a basket. And so he's leaving Damascus. And the next thing Paul does then is he goes into this next door region, into this Nabataean kingdom of Arabia. And what did he do in Arabia? This is Paul going into an area to isolate himself from the other apostles. God is intentionally putting distance between him and the other apostles at this very specific time. And this is significant because this is a time alone with God. We don't have all the exact details of what happened here, but this is a time for preparation for his ministry. You could say this was his desert seminary, where God revealed to him more and more revelation. And eventually even helped Paul to write the rest of the New Testament. I mean, think about it like, have you ever watched that show, MasterChef? Um, maybe you've watched this, that cooking show, MasterChef, where these amateur cooks come in and they're getting this master class from these professional chefs on how to cook food and become these amazing chefs. This is Paul going into the wilderness, having a master class from the master himself. But it was not just theological. It was a practical class because in 2 Corinthians 11, we also get a clue of what was going on in this area. He was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone he could find. And he was causing, this was causing problems for the Nabataean kingdom. And this king was upset because he's trying to guard the city close to Damascus. And Paul is preaching this gospel of grace and he doesn't like it. You can read more about that in 2 Corinthians 11.32. And then Paul says, after three years of being in desert seminary, he went up to Jerusalem. We get that from verse 18. He says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. And you ask yourself, why does he tell us specifically that he was there for three years? And you compare his, his life and his time of preparation with that of the other apostles. And you recognize that they were with Jesus, the master, for three years as well. And remember, the accusation is maybe he got this message from Jerusalem. And Paul's like, no, I didn't, because I was in Arabia for three years. I didn't go up to Jerusalem immediately after my conversion. 
I traveled into Arabia learning from Jesus, doing some more preaching, and, and this preaching got him into trouble, and Paul wouldn't budge. This is a man that's not going to alter his message in any way. No matter what persecution is coming his way. And then eventually he travels back to Damascus. So it's Damascus to Arabia, back to Damascus. And only after this period of three years, he goes up to Jerusalem. And he goes up there to go and meet with who? This brings us to number two, the connections after his conversion. First the movements and now the connections. He says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Paul explains that he wanted to go to meet with Peter. Finally, after three years, he makes it up to Jerusalem, the mother city, the hub of Christianity. And I'm sure most of us know that when we talk about Cephas, we're talking about who? The apostle Peter, right? Peter, of course, being this great leader, the leader of the apostles, this amazing preacher in the book of Acts, all throughout the first seven chapters. And even if you turn back to the book of Acts, in Acts 9, verse 26, you see the same event of Paul going to Jerusalem. Because it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. So he finally makes it to Jerusalem. But how are the apostles going to receive him? This man who once persecuted the very gospel, they proclaim. Well, Luke writes, And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Wait, now that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? But it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? How can they be sure Paul is the real deal? It's like Paul wanted to go to their Bible studies, but they wouldn't allow him. It's like, you know, it's like Paul wanted to join the first Baptist church in Jerusalem, but they didn't want to allow him. Because they were not sure of this man and his reputation. Well, God stepped in to help again. Acts 9 verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas is testifying that Paul is a changed man. Because look at what this man is preaching about. It's all about Jesus. And so eventually they recognize that Paul, he's legit. He's legit. His message is real. And so he's mentioning this all to the Galatians that he met with the apostle Peter first when he came to Jerusalem. And the point Paul is trying to make is that how long was he with Peter? Fifteen days. Only fifteen days. This is not enough time for Peter to give Paul three years worth of seminary training in 15 days. I mean, keep in mind, Paul is trying to say that this gospel did not come from the Jerusalem apostles. But I'm sure Peter and Paul, they had a great time together. I can only imagine what these two must have been talking about when they talk about their experiences they had with Jesus himself. But then Paul says he saw someone else as well. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I mean, the other apostles are gone. 
They're not around anymore. They've all left because they're scattered. And it could be because of what was going on with the opposition against the church. We see that in Acts 12 verse 1 because Herod is against this message. But who is James? Who is this James? This is James, the son of Mary, the half-brother of Jesus, the, the leader of the Jerusalem church. Because you remember that during Jesus' lifetime, this brother James, he didn't believe in Jesus. And we see that in John 7, he, it took the resurrection to prove to James that his older brother, this one that never got into trouble uh, any day of his life, was in fact the very Son of God. And this exposure to Jesus after his resurrection then included him as the, in the circle of being one of the apostles set apart by God. This is James who was the pillar, the, the leader of the Jerusalem church and the one who wrote the, the practical letter of James in the Bible. And this is who Paul saw while he was in Jerusalem. Only Peter and James. And he's making his point again and again. That the gospel he received on the way to Damascus has remained untouched by any human influence. And Paul is so adamant to make this point that he, he does something that seems a little strange to us at this point. He says in verse 20, And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. What is Paul doing here? Why does he slip this promise, this vow, into the sentence? I mean, the fact that he has to say this just re-emphasizes the fact that he's being falsely accused by these Judaizers who are questioning his apostolic authority. And think about it. When you sit with someone that is guilty, and maybe or someone that's in prison that's just been caught, what is the first thing they typically say? Hey, I promise, I'm telling the truth. I'm not really lying. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. That is not the sense of what Paul is saying here. Paul is making an oath before God. Something the Jews took very, very seriously. He's saying, as God is my witness, what I'm telling to you right now is the absolute truth. I'm making an oath based on the highest authority there is, which is God. And this vow, this oath, it shows the, the seriousness and the truthfulness of what I'm saying. And in fact, Paul does this a couple times in the New Testament. Like in Romans 1 verse 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son. Or Romans 9 verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bear, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Timothy 2 verse 7, he says, For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul does, does this kind of thing when he thinks he might be disputed by his readers and he wants to make this firm commitment now to the Galatians that he is only sharing the absolute truth with them. And God himself is his witness. It's like when you go into the court today and you say, I swear to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. This is a man committed to the truth at all cost. And he's shown us as far that after his conversion, he immediately does what God called him to do. He goes to Damascus, then to Arabia, and then back to Damascus. 
And then he travels up to Jerusalem where he meets with Peter and James. And he's got this profitable time with them. But it's not enough time that people can say that he got this message from these apostles. And he makes an oath by the highest standard to show how serious he is about this. And then we get to number three. The results of his conversion. The result of his conversion. First, the movements, obeying the call of God to go where God wants him to go. Then the connections, meeting with the apostles, and now the, the results of his conversion. Verse 21. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute his persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me Paul is being particular about the details of his travel seems like a geography lesson of it here today because he really really wants to make it clear that he operated independently from the other apostles he got this message from God directly spent time alone with God in Arabia and he was only with a couple of the apostles when he actually was in Jerusalem for a very short time. And because of his faithfulness to preaching the gospel that he received from Jesus, his life was in danger all the time. So again, to save his life, the Jerusalem believers now sent him to Tarsus. Because next in Galatians, Paul says, he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. That's the area of Tarsus. That's Paul's hometown. He's going home. This is one of the major cities in the Roman province of Cilicia. And we see more again of this in Acts. Acts 9 verse 30. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. And it might be that Paul must have been there for at least seven or eight years before Barnabas brought him back up to do ministry with him in Jerusalem. You see that in Acts 11 verses 27 to 30. But again, the point is, the point of the argument that he's trying to make to the Galatians is that he's switching his attention now to verse 22 to say, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Why does he mention this detail? Paul is showing that there's a clear lack of relationship that he had with the churches in Judea. Why is that important? Because even with all the time he spent in Syria and Cilicia, the, the churches in Judea are unknown to him. They don't know him personally. They've never seen him face to face. It's an important point he's trying to make because he's trying to say these are churches that are in Christ. These are true churches that are in Christ that understand this message of free grace. And although they haven't seen him personally, they believed about his radical conversion. Verse 23, the only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. His own reputation has been exceeding his own ministry. It's been going far and wide. They heard of this man who once dragged Christians off to prison is now preaching the gospel of Jesus. He's living and preaching grace. This is a totally new man. Again, this is the persecutor that became the preacher. Now think about it. How would we 
act if someone like Paul showed up at our church today knowing about his reputation? Would we want to avoid him? Constantly be suspicious of him? Maybe even be scared of him? Because, I mean, he used to kill Christians. Now he says he preaches Jesus. Well, how did the true believers in Judea respond to Paul? And they glorified God because of me. They didn't glorify God because Paul was so great. They glorified God because God is so great. It can only be God that can change someone like Paul. It can only be God that changes someone like you. That's what happens when true conversion takes place in someone's life. People live a transformed life of grace that causes other people to glorify God. Now in light of everything Paul has shown us in his former way of living, his radical conversion, and now the, the context and movements he, he's made after his conversion, think about it from his perspective. How can anyone accuse him of coming up with his own message and his own ministry? It doesn't make sense. It can't happen. It can only be one solution. The facts are clear. God gave him this gospel. We know where this gospel comes from. And we too have the responsibility to handle this gospel with care. Making sure we are not perverting the gospel. Next time we'll see in chapter 2, Paul is traveling some more. And he says he's going away for 14 years. Proclaiming the gospel. Speaking for God confidently as a new man in Christ. Because he knows where he got the gospel from. He knows who gave him this commissioning. In fact, later, Peter even recognizes that all the revelation that Paul got from God, all the things he wrote was in fact from God. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he used Paul to write the rest of the New Testament. Because Peter says in 2 Peter 3.15, as he refers to Paul, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul as also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some things in them that are hard to there, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Peter is saying what Paul wrote is scripture. And we got a little idea of where that all started, where that process started. Galatians and Romans, where did all that come from? Paul is an apostle chosen by God for the purpose of giving us revelation. But here in Galatians, Paul also shows us that true conversion leads to a life that glorifies God. God knows how sinful we are. Yet He has set us apart before the foundation of the world. He calls us by His grace. He reveals His Son to us. And then He gives us the privilege and the purpose of making Him known to the people around us. And we, like Paul, are our best argument for the truth of the gospel. When the changes in our lives are so real and others see it, they praise God for it. Paul was a walking billboard of the power of God's grace. And in the same way, 
every true believer here today is a living illustration of the power of God's transforming grace. In other words, our lives should be proof that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But the thing is, we can sometimes live our lives as if the gospel is not as powerful anymore. And the reality is, the gospel is not just this formula, how we get saved. It's not just this message about how to get right with God. No, the gospel is this truth, this reality that we are in the presence of a holy God because of His presence of His Son in our lives. He is the one who enables us to live for His glory and to be able to bring Him any kind of glory. Because that is what true conversion does by the grace of God. We want to be accurate representations of that saving, sustaining, and loving grace. Let me ask you, are you? Are you that accurate representation of God's loving, sustaining, and saving grace? Is your life a picture of the grace of God? Are you living each day holding on to the grace of God, or are you going back to your own efforts? Think about the story in Luke 18. You have these two men who are praying, and one is a Pharisee, and he's thankful that he's not like this other guy. He says, I give, I pray, I fast, I do all these things before God that should please Him. And the other guy, the sinner, tax collector, he pounds his chest and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who does the Bible say went home justified? It's the sinner. The repentant sinner. Salvation comes to those who repent as a gift of grace, without works, without fasting, without any of these religious efforts. And so let me ask you, does your life rather picture that of the prodigal son? Luke 15. We know this story as well. The son goes off into the world and he wastes his inheritance. He's got nothing left. He eventually has to eat with the pigs and his stomach can't handle that diet. And so what does he decide? He decides it's better to go home, to be a slave to my father. But how does the father receive him? Best robe, family ring, new sandals. Remember, even slaves were not given shoes because it shows that those with shoes were elevated above slaves. And do you know what you call that? It's called Grace. Grace. The son could not clean himself up enough or get his money back to get his father's approval. Rather, what you see is the father running out to the son. The father's moving towards the sinner. And the repentant son will always, always be accepted by the father. That is the gospel of grace. We want to live our lives and match up with this grace every single day. Without going back to any of our own efforts. And so we, we've got to celebrate this, this miracle that what God has done in our lives. And Paul is a great example of a man who immediately obeyed the call of God in his life. He went into all these areas, boldly proclaiming Jesus at every opportunity he had. He spent the time alone with God, learning from Him, meditating on His truth. 
He wasn't shy or deceitful about his testimony. Rather, he was swearing by the highest standard possible. That God was his witness. Living a life of truth based on true revelation. Where the grace in his life resulted in action. And it resulted in people hearing about his life. This amazing radical transformation. And what did the people do? They worshipped. They worshipped because of this change. They glorified God. And that's our goal, church. That's our goal. We want to be a church. We want to be a people that causes others to glorify God because of how much we understand, live, and proclaim the grace of Jesus Christ. One man that responded to all this grace with a beautiful song was the man John Newton. He was a pastor who understood the grace of God and he wrote the song Amazing Grace. We know that song. We love that song, right? Amazing Grace. You see, before John Newton was a Christian, did you know what he did? He was a slave trader. He would take people from Africa to other parts of the world and sell them as slaves. Yet he was met with the pleasure of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and it totally changed his life. Jesus got hold of his life and saved him from himself. Now one commentator points out that when John Newton died, he wanted the following words to be engraved onto the marble of his tomb. It says this, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he once tried to destroy. I think that sounds like something Paul would have written on his tombstone. He wanted all the glory to go to God. Even when people read about him at his death. But church, I don't want us to wait until we die before we give glory to God. You can give glory to God right now. By understanding how much he loves you because of Jesus Christ. Making sure we are not relying on our own efforts to feel accepted by God. By embracing the full forgiveness we have in Christ each and every single day. And if you mess up, you run back to that grace. Run back to the grace. Not your own efforts to be right with God. Because people who have received grace need to be gracious to others. We need to obey His call in our lives. And this means we need to go where we need to go. And we need to say what we need to say. And we have to spend time with God, meditating on His revelation to us through His Word. Because the better we understand the grace of God in our lives, the more we can glorify God to the world around us. Do you understand the grace of God? Paul's testimony makes it clear. He needed grace. That grace found him. And it changed his life forever. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you so much that you remind us at the absolute 
powerful change that comes into our lives because of your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the one that went to a cross and died on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven and experience this amazing grace. Lord, we feel so bound up in the chains of life and our sin, and we need someone to come set us free. Father God, you loved us so much that you would send your Son to come set us free. It is all grace, all the time. And Father, we want to live lives now that those who have embraced this this amazing grace of Jesus as faithful, faithful servants, faithful proclaimers of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when people look at our lives, they don't see people who are trying to earn God's favor. When they look at our lives, when we mess up, we, we don't beat ourselves over the back and that we're not good enough for Jesus. They see people who run to the cross again and again and again and see how much they've been forgiven in Christ. People who understand grace and who can extend that grace to others. I'm going to pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.